I'm Maserati E. I'm Chris Redlitz. This is The Last Mile Radio. We're paving the road to success. No lie. I've been on a mission for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I've been on a mission for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. Hey, paving the road to success. I'm paving the road to be my best. I'm paving the road to success. So, E. What up, what up? What's poppin'? Man, you know, it's so cool that we have people that are so committed yes. to causes on this show. And we're talking about stories of redemption, transformation, and how you can be almost at rock bottom and make those changes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I feel like the hard times build character. Well, how you choose to respond to the hard times build character for sure. And resilience to get to anywhere great is a key. That's needed. It's interesting because I just read a book by... um, by Matt Higgins. What's the name of this book? It's called Burn the Boats. Okay. Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your <laughs> Full Potential. I like the sounds of that. So the whole premise around Burn the Boats is that um, if you have a plan B, you're not necessarily fully committed to plan A. I could see that. So back in the day, like there's a story of Julius Caesar mm-hmm. advancing his troops mm-hmm. and they were on the shores and they entered by boat mm-hmm. and he ordered his captains to burn their boats so they had no choice to be victorious. Oh, so, that's dedication on a whole so, nother level right there. Yeah. So so that whole concept is a big thing in business about you have to plan B and blah, blah, blah. But the interesting thing is that this whole concept of burn the boats doesn't exist for a certain subset of our society because there's no boats to burn. Right. And this is so appropriate in prison because people have no choice. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Unfortunately, options are extremely limited in prison. So like you said, it's not too many boats. So when you do get that boat, you're all in because you kind of ain't got a choice. And when it comes with the, again, like it's not like there's no options. It's just limited. So when you got to pick out of a chow hall job, which is paying like eight cents an hour, yep. or getting a job as like a, a TA or something at a school, which is even less. I believe it's like five cents an hour or something like that. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, like it's, it's going to become a little hard, in my opinion, a little difficult to really become dedicated to something or become passionate about something enough to burn the boat. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. And 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 part of it is you have to own that story. You have to take responsibility for what you need to do Mm -hmm. because, you know, the boat is you. Absolutely. You know? And so part of that is, and we talk a lot about this, about um, owning your own story, creating your own narrative. And one excerpt, I'm going to give Matt some kudos here. I'm going to give him his flowers. Give him his flowers, Chris. Give him his flowers. (laughs) But he says, if you own your story, you can turn your pain into an asset that drives you, not the anchor that drags you down. That's poetic. Right? That's deep. Don't be stealing that for one of your leaders. <laughs> if I do, I will cite my source. <laughs> for sure. But that's deep, man. That's poetic. That's, that's man. That's deep right there, for real. I feel like it's so much that could be taken so away. So how that. do you relate to, in your story, right? Mm-hmm. How, how do you relate to that? Because you were in that situation. You entered prison at 17. Mm-hmm. You didn't really have any options there. You had to make it work. So this is very appropriate theme for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So early on, no option. It was no options driven to hard, first and foremost. Only option you have for anything extracurricular is education. That's it. So... I was only in juvenile hall for like six months and I was so far behind like in my high school credits and stuff like that. So I was trying to catch up, but just wasn't there long enough. And I was in CYA for three months. California Youth Authority. California Youth Authorities for like three months. And then I got to prison where it's, it's a little bit more options, but it still was limited. I felt like like the options didn't become a little bit more vast to the point where I could become like passionate about what I'm pursuing until I got to San Quentin. Yeah. Like when I got to San Quentin, you got so many different forms of media projects that are like impactful. Like it's things that's making a difference. You know what I mean? I feel like it's something to actually be passionate about. Like, don't get me wrong. Like 
education is something to be passionate about. I did obtain my GED while I was in Old Folsom State Prison, but Old Folsom was one of those prisons where, again, wasn't too many options. Like, right. you got general education and then, like, the college courses and stuff like that, which wasn't too deep. You couldn't get too deep in that. It wasn't like a San Quentin where they got accredited colleges and things like that. So, like, I really could only get passionate in my music, for right. real. So your plan A became music and then production because Absolutely. you had the opportunity to have access to those tools. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Music was plan A, still is plan A. And the reason being, though, again, just being limited. So once I had the opportunity to have more options, to have another boat, you know what I mean, to uh, burn in the long run, I definitely dove deep into it, and it mainly was just based off of that impact. Once I knew that I can utilize my voice and uplift the stories and the truths of my community, which was silenced, like that was something that definitely fueled my passions for sure. So yeah. luckily, that tied in with music, though. So I didn't necessarily have to burn the boat. Like they, they were in the same boat, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I didn't have to burn one because they tied into each other. So I was all in. Well, I love the analogy. I don't love it 100% because, as you know, I'm a sailor, so I don't want to be burning my own boat. <laughs> oh, no. <right? nah. laughs> um, let's turn it to our guest now because this is so appropriate for her right. because she was at a point where she had no alternatives. Right. And she'll talk about her story, and we both know her very well. Definitely. Um, and we're talking about Jessica Jackson as our guest, right? So maybe give us a little background on Jessica. Absolutely, absolutely. Dive in just a little bit. So Jessica is an American human rights attorney and chief advocacy officer at Reform Alliance. She served as the youngest mayor of the city of Mill Valley, California. When she was 22, her then husband was sentenced to six years in prison for a nonviolent drug offense. Jessica Jackson had a newborn baby and no job, so she moved in with her mother. Her husband's prison sentence motivated her to go to college and law school so that she could become a lawyer and fight for families like her own. She was putting in that work, and I'm so excited to have her on the show. The last time I seen her, I was in prison blues. Wow. So, man, I'm juiced. I'm juiced to have her on the show. Yeah. Definitely. That's awesome. So when we come back right here on The Last Mile Radio on Sirius XM, we're going to be chopping it up with my partner, Jessica Jackson. Yes, yes, and we are back. We are back. You tuned in to the Last Mile Radio right here on Sirius XM. And I'm so excited, so excited to announce our guest. Oh my goodness, somebody that's near and dear to my heart. My friend Jessica Jackson in the building. How you feeling? I'm I'm so happy to be here and to see you and <laughs> and just to get to hang out with you a bit. Absolutely. It's it's been a minute. Last yeah. time you see me, I was in prison blues. That's true. That's true. Man. Yeah, we really appreciate you doing this. Seriously. We do. I know it could be just a conversation with, with the two of you, but I have to be sort of, <laughs> Absolutely. I'm the third wheel you, you here. You got to come in, man. I'm the third wheel here. So, you know, it's great because, you know, you have such a history um, that's so interesting and you've taken a bad situation and turned it into something really transformational, not only for you, but also people within the system. And, um, you know, it's it's really cool because I, I, I was watching a video last week just to do some prep and it was when your daughter was in the white house and beverly my wife co-founder of the last mile was there with your daughter sitting there and she introduced the vice president mm -hmm. and that was so cool i mean that must have been a really proud moment for you after all you've been through to see this happen and, and she's doing phenomenal things today as a student, right? And she's sort of following a bit in your footsteps. Um, but what was that like for you? Yeah, I remember I got really emotional. So I was actually in the green room with Jared Kushner and, and Van Jones and Rick Perry and Topeka Sam. And we were about to go on stage, um, you know, next for a panel. And I remember I was like, watching the TV and I just started getting emotional and I'm like, oh my gosh, we've come so far from, you know, where where we started, which was really, um, you know, watching her dad get taken to prison. And I'm proud of her for, for all the work she's continuing to do. She's organizing Gen Z to show up on this issue. She just wrote an op-ed in, you know, USA Today and, and she's really trying to, to get people to care and it's good because there's still so much work to be done. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, first and foremost, that's incredible. 
And um, secondly, I, I want to dive a little bit into your background story. So how did you get to the point where you are now where things are getting addressed from the, by the White House, by all places? You know what I mean? Like, how do we get to this point? Yeah, I, I always say I was sort of naive and, and didn't realize, you know, what all was in front of me when I set out to to make some changes to the criminal justice uh, system. But it really started, you know, I had a really tough childhood. Um, I ended up, you know, starting to use drugs when I was 12 years old, um, started running away from home, started being very defiant, uh, pretty much dropped out of high school once. And then my parents sent me to a, you know, wilderness. They called it camp. It really mm. was not camp. <laughs> and then and then to a therapeutic boarding school, um, actually up in, in Connecticut. And uh, the day I turned 18, I left there. I left without my high school diploma. Um, I did not want any part of, of being there. So I had my own sort of rough path and, and many times through that could have ended up incarcerated myself. Uh, ended up becoming a bartender, still using drugs, still sort of partying and living that lifestyle. And then I got pregnant, well, I got married and then I got pregnant with Hannah. And um, you know, when I had Hannah, all that stopped for me. She was like my my purpose in the world, right? Suddenly you have have this human who you have to uh, take care of. Unfortunately, um, her dad, it sort of all caught up for him and, and he ended up getting arrested and, and picking up a bunch of charges. And at the time, um, you know, I didn't know anything about the criminal justice system. I'd, I'd grown up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was right by San Quentin. You know, you can practically see it from the town I the grew up in. You really could. I mean, I was in Mill Valley. I was in Marin County, like right there, 10 minute drive to, to right San Quentin. There. And um, I remember, you know, when there was an execution, when they brought back executions in California, I remember the protests around that. I remember my mom sitting on the couch crying. So I knew about death penalty. I knew how wrong death penalty was. I didn't, I hadn't really thought about people in prison and, and why they were there. So I think I sort of subscribed to the narrative. Like if you're in prison, you had done something, right? And once it was my loved one, right, once it was somebody I knew was a good father, was a good husband, was an employer, was a good son who, who went to his parents' house twice a week to check on them and have dinner and, you know, who had just had a problem and just hadn't gotten, you know, the treatment he needed for that problem. Once I had that perspective on the system... I knew that I had to do something. And especially once I saw the terrible lawyering he had, um, we had a public defender that unfortunately it's before Georgia had a statewide public defender system, um, you know, told us that he would get him probation basically. And that's what we were expecting. And they came back with the first deal, 10 serve one. And I remember, and it was going to be suspended by six months of boot camp. And I remember I was so emotional because I was like, oh my God, he'll miss, you know, the birth of our child. Like he can't do that. Mm. And, and the lawyer's telling me he's just going to get probation if we go to trial. And then next thing I know that we're standing in front of the judge and the judge is like, if you take this to trial, uh, I'm going to throw the book at you. You're going to get 50 years. Wow. Yeah. Damn. 50 years. To, so in my head, I'm like, but I thought he was going to get probation, right? Um, and of course, I didn't know all the terrible things I know now about probation at the time, but at least he was going to be home with me. And he was the breadwinner in the house. He was the only one with an income at the time. And... Um, you know, it was just devastating. So we asked for another deal. We asked for the same deal. And unfortunately, you know, even though nothing had changed, it wasn't like he was suddenly some sort of public safety risk. The DAs were pissed that he had turned down the first deal and said, well, we'll give you a deal. It's not the same deal. We'll give you 15 serve six. Wow. Damn. Right. Like just overnight, suddenly we're going to add years and, and make this guy go to prison. And I just remember I was so terrified because of that judge that I said, we got to take this deal. You know, it was going to be three and a half years, you know, with, with good time credit, with working, with all that. Like, we got to take this deal. And I, I'll never forget the lawyer looked at me and he was like, I've never seen a, a couple make it more than two years. with wow. One on the inside, one on the outside. And I feel like something about, you know, him saying that just made it come true because mm. we did end up getting a divorce. Um, it was extremely hard. It was I, I moved down to Florida where we had support, where we could live with his parents for a little while. And I started going to school. Um, but the phone calls were $21 for 15 minutes. That's crazy. Yeah, it was it was crazy. I was a college student. I was broke. Mm. I, you know, I I was living off student loans and, and I'm still paying those back. Um, and 
then if I wanted to go visit him, even if I'd wanted to go visit him from Atlanta where we lived, it would have been an eight hour drive. So I was trying to visit him driving, you know, six to eight hours each weekend or, you know, at least one weekend a month. The gas costs money. I got a newborn screaming in the back. Um, you know, you got to stop somewhere and eat. You got to you got to spend the night somewhere. It just all adds up and it made it impossible to keep the marriage together. So even though our marriage didn't last, it definitely is what inspired me to go to college and law school and try and keep this terrible system from ripping together, ripping apart families like mine. So talk to us about that, because some people would just give it up. Right. Some people would say, I just can't deal with it. Maybe they turn to drugs, maybe they turn to something, but you turned that into a motivation that's really pretty incredible. Um, was there a seminal moment where you said, I have to do this and I'm going to do this? Not only, uh, you know, you took it to an extreme, right? In yeah. a great way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I remember to me, one of the biggest moments was like, I, of course I felt like I was going to give up. Like, I watched him. We walked in. We, you know, thought we were going to talk about a plea. And because he ended up taking the plea, they ended up taking him right then. Yeah, right? right then. Right then. And, and that's not something you can, like, prepare for, right. I'm sure. But, like, we literally didn't know it was going to happen that day. Like, we yeah. had, like, lunch plans. Right? Yeah. So, um, we walk in. I've got the baby in my arms. She's two months old. Exactly. Two months to the day. And, um, you know, he had driven and he had this big old power stroke truck uh ford f3 350 and i didn't know how to drive it um so we walk in and, and like suddenly the bailiff is taking him away and he's turning and he's handing me his like you know his ring and his wallet and his keys and i'm like so overwhelmed by the moment because now he's walking away for possibly six years right right and I'm holding this baby and I'm holding keys to a truck. I don't even know how to drive this truck home, right? And I just remember being so overwhelmed and feeling so terrible. And I ran to the bathroom. I had to nurse the baby anyway. It was Georgia 2004. You couldn't just nurse in the courtroom. So I ran to the bathroom and I'm sitting on the floor in this like bathroom stall. And I'm just looking at this baby and I'm crying on her and I'm crying on her. And her big blue eyes are just like staring at me. And I just... um. I remember I was like, shit, I really have to do something, right? Like, I, I really have to step it up because, like, now I'm all you got, right? right? And that was that was sort of that, that moment for me, I think. Wow. Yeah. That's... I don't think I knew how I was going to do it. I had no idea what I was going to do. I still don't, you know, a lot of the time. Um, things just keep coming our way and, and we keep taking them on. But um, that was definitely the moment that I was like, okay, I, I don't have a choice here. I, I got to do something. And you did. And you definitely <laughs> did. You definitely turned pain into power. So I definitely got to commend you and give you your flowers on that. Thank you. I would say you definitely the epitome of turning pain into power. That's such a moving story, like so serious. So to go from that to what we're doing now, like that is just mind blowing. And the strength displayed in that definitely got to give you your flowers for that, for sure. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Because every time, you know, we were we'll get to this, I'm sure. But we were passing a very difficult bill at one point. And I would lose sort of my, I would lose that that momentum, right? Like it's hard once you're already in the work and doing it and like the drudgery of it. And every time I felt like I was sort of losing that momentum, I would come into San Quentin and I'd see you guys and I'd be like, oh my God, if they could be optimistic and they could be like fighting every day and trying to make things better and, and turning such dire circumstances into something amazing, into a mixtape, into new friendships, into coding programs, like I, I got to just keep going. So I feel like you guys motivated me a whole lot. Um, I, I miss That's those deep. days. That's <laughs> deep. And you listening to The Last Mile Radio right here on SiriusXM. We chopping it up with Jessica Jackson. It's going down. And, it, and it's so... You you had that moment where you realized that you had to do something. You did it, and it was a struggle. But then you you became a leader, and you one of the things you did was you talk about Marin. You were mayor of Marin. Like, how does that happen? <laughs> right. How does that happen? I mean, this is this is where I say like sometimes I just it's good not to know what's in front of you, right? Because 
Um, when I moved back to the Bay Area, so I went to college down in, in Florida, mm-hmm. and uh, my ex got out, and um, I had gotten accepted to law schools. While I was down in Florida, I ended up working at a death penalty office. I was doing an honors thesis, and I, I had done a minor uh, degree in statistics, and they needed somebody who would do some statistical workups on lethal injection. So I ended up working down in this um, law office, and unfortunately, one of the clients was executed while I was there, wow. um, whose, whose case we had worked on. Um, that must have been heavy. I, yeah, it was very heavy. So, um, you know, to me, at that point, I was like, okay, the whole justice system screwed up, but I really want to work on death penalty issues because the worst of the worst lawyering happens on, on death penalty cases. And obviously, like, that that penalty is irreversible, right? Right. Um, so I only applied to law schools that had uh, that had death penalty programs, and one of them was in the Bay Area, Santa Clara Law School. Mm. Uh, so I, I got into a couple of them, and then when I was making the decision, I was like, well, I have this four-year-old, and everybody has told me that law school is going to be like a whole different thing from college. It's going to be nonstop work. I probably should move back to the Bay and, and be near my mom, and, and she can help me with my daughter. And thankfully, she did, because I don't know how I would have made it through law school without her. Um, but when I moved back, you know, I, the first year I lived down in San Jose, right by by the university. And um, then, strangely enough, my entire apartment building burned down. Uh, so I had to relocate and and got another apartment. And then Hannah was starting her kindergarten, and I tried to get her into a charter school. She didn't get in there. And Finally, I ended up deciding I'm just going to move closer to my mom. She's about an hour and a half away. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and move back up to Marin, and then I'll commute down to law school. And when I went to do that, I noticed there were no apartments that I could afford. I mean, it was ridiculous. Like, you know, I ended up with a 600-square-foot apartment for like $2,000 a month, and it was like through family, friends that we were able to get it. There just wasn't affordable housing. And so that sort of sat with me. And a couple years later, I'd gotten pretty involved in the local Democratic Party um, through the ballot initiative to end the death penalty. And uh, somebody mentioned, you know, I'd, I'd been wanting to find a way to work on affordable housing. And somebody mentioned there was a council seat up for reelection in my city. And I was like, OK, well, uh, maybe I should do that. And then I can build some affordable housing. And, I, you know, I didn't I didn't really realize how it all works. So I remember I walked into City Hall and I met with the city manager and he was like, are you here? Like, are you here to apply for a job or I was like oh no I'm gonna be on the city council and he's like yeah okay so he gave me all the paperwork and I'd never sat on any of the boards or any of the commissions which is like sort of the you know protocol but I was able to get a whole bunch of my friends out and talk about an issue I care deeply about and get elected to the city council and then from there I went on to to become mayor and and served uh, in Mill Valley for six years. Wow. That yeah. is incredible. Talk about resilience. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Like literally overcame even like like at the beginning of the story, that already was crazy. So the resilience there, but then overcoming your house burning down and then prevailing was, to be the mayor. Like this is crazy. The level of resilience is not you want tough cookie, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And we right here on the last mile radio chopping it up with Jessica Jackson is going down. It is going down. So Fast forward, present day. What's some of the stuff you're working on today? Yeah, so I now work at an organization called the Reform Alliance. I'm the chief operating and advocacy officer over there. Um, We are really, really focused on an issue that um, is close to my heart because when my ex-husband came home, uh, he actually did have a lot of people to help him re-enter. We were able to, you know, get him transferred. So he was down in Florida, um, although I had already moved. And, you know, he was able to get a job, which is a huge hurdle for a lot of people coming home from prison. For real. Um, he was able to get housing, you know, first living with his parents and then able to secure his own housing. Um, and he was able to get, you know, his life back on track. He started having a relationship with our daughter, which had been hard That's because he hadn't been able to see her. Um, but then, unfortunately, uh, you know, he was driving one day and he got pulled over for a busted taillight and um, he was still on probation. And unfortunately, his probation officer basically just hadn't entered in the system that he had met with him the last time. So since he had done that interstate transfer, 
it wasn't in the system that he'd been reporting to probation. Oh, wow. And so he gets picked up right then and there, right? Um, and taken in transit, you know, in transport back to the state of Georgia, wow. which is wow. a haul in and of itself. Crazy. And then has to sit in a jail for like 60 days till they clear up the fact that he actually had been reporting. So that's nuts. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but not many employers are going to hold a job for 60 days for somebody. Definitely not. Um, not a whole lot of places, not a whole lot of apartment buildings are going to hold an apartment when you're not paying rent for 60 days, right? right? So he describes it as, you know, a punch in the gut. And, and I'm sure it really was, but that was one of the biggest setbacks he faced. And I, I saw that and. Um, it really motivated me. So this is an issue that's very close to my heart. Uh, we work on ending mass supervision, which is a huge feeder of mass incarceration. Um, and then expanding opportunities for people who are coming home. We're doing a bunch of job fairs and exploring different ways that we can help with economic mobility for people who have come home. And, that's you know, we, we, we have talked a lot of folks about being change agents and and those that have a sphere of influence that they can use for positive. And the Reform Alliance is an organization that reflects that. There's a lot of folks that you work with with influence who have leaned into this issue. Yeah. Well, the incredible thing about Reform Alliance is it was really born from lived experience. Uh, one of our board co-chairs is artist uh, Meek Mill. Right. And Meek Mill himself was on probation. He was right. incarcerated and then on, on probation. For how long? Wasn't oh, it like my God. A crazy For his time? entire, like, adult life from, like, 18 to, nice. you know, 30-something. So um, he ended up getting a couple of technical violations that were so insanely absurd. Like popping a wheelie or he something like that, right? He popped a wheelie in a music video. He had a water pistol in a music video. He, um, you know, sought treatment for an opioid addiction. He he developed when he was on drugs for, for shoulder surgery. Mm -hmm. And then he broke up a fight, right? Like he, there's no dispute about it. He broke up a fight at an airport and uh, the police came and that was a contact with law enforcement. Wow. Um, so because of, of these things, uh, the judge who really had it kind of out for him sentenced him to two to four years in prison. Hmm. And at the time, um, he had developed a friendship with a guy named Michael Rubin, who owned the 76ers and owns Fanatics. Mm -hmm. And he was being represented um, by Rock Nation. Mm -hmm. So CEO uh, Desiree Perez. And they both came to court that day. And, you know, Michael tells us, like, he thought there was no way. Like, he thought Meek was crazy saying, like, I might go to prison, right? Like, why would you go to prison for popping a wheelie? That's crazy. 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 But two to four years. So they both got fired up and launched a massive campaign to free Meek. And I think when they did, um, you know, they realized how many people there were in Meek's same shoes, right? 25% of our, our prisons and jails are filled with people who are there for supervision violations. Right. Um, so they realized, you know, it wasn't just Meek, it was millions. And from there, they were able to pull together our incredible board. We've got, you know, Robert Smith, Bob Kraft, Laura Arnold. Um, you heavy know, hitters. I'm, I'm going to forget some people here and be in trouble, but we just Van have Jones. such an, uh, we have right, such an in incredible board and they were able to pull them all together. Uh, Jay-Z, can't forget him. Oh yeah, don't forget um, you. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> and um and put together Reform Alliance. And because of that, you know, we've been able to pass 16 bills in 10 different states. We've got legislation going on in, in five states right now. We're about to reintroduce a federal bill. Um, and we've been able to create a pathway off of probation or parole for 654,000 people in the last four years. And one of those things you worked on was the CARES Act, correct? Yeah, we also worked on the CARES Act. Um, so when COVID hit, you know, everybody's worried about uh, whether or not they got toilet paper. Immediately, I think most people in this field who or anybody who's been inside a prison will say, oh, my God, what's going to happen to the people inside prison? Because they don't have an opportunity to, you know, quarantine themselves and isolate. Right. And we know medical care is terrible inside of the prisons. They can't even have hand sanitizer because it contains alcohol, right? Like, Crazy, yeah. what is going to happen to the people inside prisons? And because of an existing relationship that I, Van and I had with uh, President Trump's administration, mm -hmm. having worked on the First Step Act, yep. um, we were able to go to them and really, really push uh, to be able to get people out 
through the CARES Act to avoid, um, you know, all the mass casualties that that we were sure were going to happen. You know, it's a you mentioned that you were Democrat living in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. You were able to work across that party line. You were very involved in the, uh, you know, with the Trump administration. A lot of people have sort of judging the book by the cover and saying, I don't want to go there. How did you, because, and Van was very upfront and took a lot of crap for that. Oh, yeah. How did you sort of reconcile that, and, you know, working with that? Because we were involved as well, but you were in the front line there. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely a difficult time for sure because suddenly people that i've been friends with forever were like uh i can't talk to you if you're talking to trump administration crazy stuff right right? like so but the way it all transpired is that when i had co-founded cut 50 my prior nonprofit um with van jones we started out being bipartisan in fact uh the catalyst really for that was that van was on a show called crossfire yep and sitting next to him was Newt Gingrich. Right. And him and Newt Gingrich would argue. Like, literally the whole show was about them arguing, right? <laughs> like, these two people don't agree on anything, so let's make a show about it. And um, they would argue, argue, argue. But they sort of, you know, Van's likable. Newt's very likable. So they developed, like, kind of a, a friendship, right? And during one of the breaks, Newt said, you know, what are you working on? And Van said, I'm working on criminal justice reform. And Newt was like, you know, you guys got the messaging all wrong on that. Like, you guys need to be working with people on my side of the aisle. And Van's like, uh, excuse me, like, you're interested in this issue? And he's like, yeah, absolutely, because the libertarians, you know, they they don't like a big bloated government system that has no accountability, no transparency. The evangelicals, they believe in second chances. Um you know, fiscal conservatives are mad. We're spending $386 billion a year on a system that's failing 68% of the time. So yeah, you guys need to be talking to us. We should be working together on this. And we took them up on it. We um, we held the Beautiful. bipartisan summit for criminal justice reform in 2015. Um, that uh, was just amazing. And then from there, um, when Trump took office, you know, Jared Kushner was somebody who had also been impacted by this issue. Uh, he was in law school when his father was sent to prison. And, you know, he was down there visiting him and meeting other people his dad was incarcerated with. And he cared very deeply about this issue. Uh, so he reached out to Van because he knew Van had been willing to work with Republicans. And I'll never forget, you know, Van calling me and saying Jared Kushner wanted to meet with us. And I'm like, Jared Kushner, like, <laughs> like 45 Jared Kushner, like, no, I'm not doing, you know, and, and Van's like, hold on, hold on. Like, I mean, at that point we'd already worked with like the Koch brothers and like American conservative union and, you know, and, and, um, New Gingrich and Grover Norquist. But Van was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. He's like, so if you think about it, he's got a 187,000 people in the palm of his hand, right? Everybody in federal prison. And yes, this is the guy who ran on American carnage and who has advocated for death penalty for people who have drug convictions, right? But if we can do something to help the people in prison yep. and to make this you know, clearly a bipartisan issue, we need to do that. And that's what it's about. And, and I remember I was like, Van... What if they come for you on Twitter? Don't ask, like, you know, but that's where you see it, right? And I'm like, Van, they're going to come for you on Twitter. Like, we walk in that building, they're coming for you. And he's like, look, Jessica, like, my worst day on Twitter is better than somebody's best day in prison, and we have to try. Hmm. Yeah. That's deep. I mean, and and again, Van's background is, you know, he was uh, one of those guys in the Bay Area, right, in Oakland, who, yeah. who was, you know— uh, raising a lot of issues when they weren't cool to raise those issues. So he's used Absolutely. to taking that for sure. Absolutely. And and I got to chime in. I feel like that's quite literally the only way we're really going to see a difference as a whole, as a society out here in America, for sure. Like these lines in the sand ain't going to get us nowhere. It's only going to create more separation. We, we can't be divisive. We have to unify. If we want to see a difference as a whole, we cannot have these lines in the sand. So we have to have these conversations. Prime example Van probably would have never known his interest if they would have never initiated that conversation. So we have to initiate these conversations. We have to take that initiative to just see, you know what I mean? But also be open-minded enough to even consider what 
uh, opposing party, quote unquote, may view. Because yeah. when we see what their views are and they see what ours is, then we could find common ground and meet in the middle and actually make a difference. Hence, like what you're saying right now. Like, I feel like if, if the parties didn't come together and unify in those type of ways, I don't think the conclusion would have been the same. Yeah. And there's thousands of people who are home free now because of it. I meet them at conferences. I mean, you know, that's cool. I, right? I, I just had somebody today who's who's actually a, a family member who was calling me, telling me, you know, there were some changes in a prison that his loved one was in because of First Step Act that yeah. it's just amazing. And I think even when we were getting hit the hardest, right, being called, called sellouts and, you know, everybody was sort of coming for us. Um, I would go, you know, Monday through Thursday, I was in D.C., even though I lived in Mill Valley. Monday through Thursday, I was in D.C. Um, Every other week was Tuesday through Thursday because I had to be there for the for the council meeting on Monday night. But Fridays, I would come into San Quentin prison and I would sit with David Jassy and and Wall Street and you and, you know, um, all the guys over in the newsroom. And and they'd all be saying, you know, what's going on? What's happening with this bill? And. I would tell them and, you know, as we're working through, like, uh, there's going to be exclusions to pass this bill, right? Like, people who are inside won't necessarily, certain people who have been convicted of certain crimes aren't going to get, you know, certain access to programs or, you know, whatever these difficult points were during the process i would tell them i would tell them and every time they'd be like that's a start jessica you just got to keep fighting for it like just get back out there and it just it was so motivating that i'm so grateful i had like that to to ground me and center me and and Mm -hmm. just all the incredible people who were formerly incarcerated that came out and worked on the campaign they're the ones who ended up actually convincing the lawmakers right they were the most effective advocates and just incredible yeah and There's a domino effect to this as well. Um, and the one that's very near and dear to all of us is that you you and Kim Kardashian created a relationship. Mm-hmm. And Kim took on Alice's case mm-hmm. and um, Alice Johnson. And she was commuted. Yeah. As a result of that, when the president... 45, was at his last few days in office, he was able to commute people. And one of the people that's near and dear to our heart, who was on the show previously, Michael. Mm-hmm. Harry-O. Michael yeah. Harry-O. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, he was commuted based on this domino effect of you and Kim working with Alice. And then we got to know Ivanka and we wrote a letter and supported that, and you know, um, Michael was released. Yeah, and that's what's so cool about it because yeah. you took that mantle, you took your position, you had access to somebody who has big influence, mm-hmm. and um, it resulted in you know Harry O getting out, and the things that he's doing today yeah. are phenomenal. So I want to thank you publicly oh. for that. <laughs> Got to give you your flowers. <laughs> because, um, you know, Michael's family to yeah. us. Yeah, no, he's amazing. I remember when Van first told me about that case and I was like, oh, God, this is going to be a long shot, right? But I, I remember um, that case. And there's so many other ones, too, that, you know, they were just names on a paper. But now I see them out in the world and they're doing incredible things. And it's like none of that would have been possible. Daryl Frazier, you know, for yeah. example, he was he was let out same time as Harry O. And. Um, he's down in Tennessee running like a tennis program for, you know, uh, kids that are, are in bad situations. Um, you know, we've got Judith Negron down in Miami. We were able to get her first commuted and then, uh, and then actually pardoned and, and get her restitution forgiven. Um, and Kim's following your footsteps. She's now becoming an attorney. Is she, she is becoming an attorney. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I, I supervise her, her legal studies. She is kicking butt. She passed the baby bar, which is so hard to pass. That's awesome. Um, you know, she's just been an incredible advocate. She goes in prisons all the time now, sometimes even without me. Right. And, <laughs> um, and she's, you know, she's, just such an incredible voice on this. And uh, we actually just did a dinner, Reform Alliance just did a dinner that featured her. We co-hosted it with her. Um, and we got all the Gen Z influencers together. So all these all these youth who are like doing incredible things, leading organizations, and some of them who are just, you know, taking over the internet with their, with their content. And they're just incredible creators. And Kim really, you know, pushed 
this issue on them and was like, it's your responsibility. Like, you got to get involved in this and you got to help. And, you know, she's inspiring the next generation of leaders now to, to really fight on this issue. Well, think about it. You, many years ago, were sitting in that bathroom crying with your daughter. And then you've now had this influence over so many people. And you have your colleagues now or people of note that have huge influence. Yeah. You must sit back occasionally and say, holy shit, what have I done? I don't get very much time <laughs> to sit anywhere. <laughs> I got three kids and, you know, crazy job. Um, but, you know, it, it is amazing. I, I still have a lot of goals that we have to get to. Um, one of the things I've, I've been sort of starting to engage on is like, we think American prisons are bad. There's some countries that I, it's, you know, unspeakable what's yeah. happening inside of their prisons. And, oh, wow. um, you know, I, I've started to have a lot more contact, I guess, with advocates across the world who are wondering, like, how did the U.S. start to turn, you know, the, the page on, on the horrific abuses inside the prisons? Not that we're done yet, but it feels like there's just still so much more work to do. But um, none of it would be possible if we didn't have incredible advocates like you, Maserati, and, you know, uh, just folks like you two. Beverly was willing to come to the White House even when it was Trump. <laughs> um, well, I just well, remember we... being like, thank God. God, there's a familiar face here. We had two straws. She got the short one. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate She's a better negotiator than I am in many situations, much more diplomatic. So she did a great job to support that. But even just like coming and being able to talk about the last mile and mm -hmm. all the work you guys were doing in the prisons. And like, I remember the energy that brought. And before we did that big summit in the White House where yeah. Hannah introduced the vice president and everything, um, we actually had like kind of small group meetings mm -hmm. with governors all across the country. And I remember, you know, the last mile being held up as like, look, this is a model program. Like, this is such an incredible program. And by the way, they're also paying people like a real wage, which does not happen yep. normally in our prisons. Right. Um, but I, I can't thank you guys enough for everything you've done with the last mile. And then, you know, for being willing to to take that sort of precarious step into the White House and, and talk to governors from Red State and, you know, be able to spread this incredible work you're doing. Well, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I didn't think I would be friends with red state Republican <laughs> governors, but I got some buddies now that are on speed dial that are governors yeah. throughout the country. So it's yeah. really interesting. So as we wrap, one of the mm -hmm. questions we love to ask is, and there's many things that can change. Plethora. Plethora of <laughs> things. But if there's one thing that you could change within criminal justice that really sticks out to you, what would that be? Like just based on my own impact and based on, you know, all the incredible people I've met inside, I would just reallocate our resources into diversion programs. I, I think once you've got somebody who's actually living inside of a prison or a jail, it's it's too much, you know, like we've done too much. There are really good people who make a bad decision. And we've all made bad decisions. I've made a million bad decisions. I just didn't get caught for them, right? Um, but there are people who maybe are suffering from mental health issues that are untreated. A lot of the country actually is Absolutely. suffering from mental health issues, especially coming out of this pandemic. Um, and access to mental health care is so difficult. There are people who are suffering, like my ex was, uh, from drug abuse, right, from from drug addiction, that if they got treatment, they could go back to, to living their lives successfully, right? Mm -hmm. There are people who don't have economic opportunities, who, who grow up in a situation where they might have to commit a crime to survive. None of us can blame them for that, right? Yeah, but yeah. we could provide more opportunities, right? So the fact that we have a system that has one tool for all three of those scenarios and more, right, which is just put somebody in handcuffs and put them in a prison or a jail, that is atrocious to me. We need to actually be looking at the underlying reasons why people are committing crimes and treating that. Otherwise, yes. you're just going to end up with this cycle. So there's no reason that we should be putting people in jails and prisons. We need to be working with them and getting them the supports and the treatments that they need so they can be successful citizens like the rest of us. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Cannot put a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. Exactly. It's not going to heal right. It ain't going to work. Exactly. Definitely. And, it, and it's not going to prevent future crimes. Yeah. Right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, uh, but thank you so much for pulling up on us. I said all the time, presence is priceless. Presence is priceless. So thank you so much for coming and being present, blessing us with your wisdom. Oh, my goodness. And, and your story, that's so powerful. Like, you, you are extremely resilient. Definitely. If that's one of the takeaways for myself is resilience and how that can become prosperous in so many different ways and the level of impact that you've had on so many people, myself included, for sure. Uh, for sure. So definitely just got to give you your flowers and, and, and just uplift you for that, for real, because that's very powerful. And so thank you. Well, thank you guys so much for having me Thanks on for and, and for all we the really incredible work it. you guys are doing. Absolutely. And you're tuned in to The Last Mile Radio right here on Sirius XM. We just got done chopping it up with Jessica Jackson. Stay tuned. We'll be back shortly. Yes, yes, and we are back. We are back. You are tuned in to the Last Mile Radio right here on Sirius XM. And Chris, we just had a real, real powerful conversation with Jessica Jackson, man. I got deep. I love it. I love it. I mean, she's such an advocate. She's so motivational, and her story is just so gripping. For real. And she's not done. She's not even started yet. That right? is nuts. When you, when you think about what's already been accomplished and how far she's already came... But to know the truth in the statement you just made right now, that is nuts. And she's produced another Jessica. Right. Her daughter. Right. Hannah is following in her footsteps. That's just setting a legacy, man. Definitely. And I have to say, like, we, we mentioned it briefly, but um, the whole domino thing with her getting involved with Kim Kardashian and then Alice Johnson, who was commuted by President Trump, becoming an advocate for others to get commuted. He has the opportunity to commute some. I get a call saying, hey, we can, we, you have a person that, that we can submit. And we had Michael Harry O'Harris and he gets commuted by Trump and the things, and we did an interview with him in a previous episode and the things that he's doing today. So just that work, you know, Jessica taking that mantle and using her influence and boom, now she's, you know, she's working with some of the most powerful people in the country. Right. Quite literally breaking the mold. Breaking the mold. Quite literally. Like the way that we've been molded in America, she is breaking that on so many different levels. I think that should be a song, shouldn't it? I, th I think it should be. I think I know that song. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> Definitely. But, but seriously, like one of the things that, that really stood out to me was was like when she mentioned Van Jones and his co-host and how they initiated that conversation and some of the things that came from that. I feel from, like with Newt Gingrich, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that is extremely important, and it sucks that they were under like immense ridicule. You know right. what I mean? To be ridiculed and, and crucified to that extent. You know what I mean? Like that's nuts. Especially knowing the fruits of the labor that came from that. Sure. You know what I mean? However, it definitely was worth it. But one of the main takeaways for me is we need to have these conversations. We need to remove these lines in the sand. Because if not, we're not going to get shit done. Like, it's going it's to, the cycles is just going to repeat. This is the only way we could actually break the mold and see a difference. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, hopefully the examples that we're setting and the people that we're bringing on in this show... I mean, I'm a good example of that, too. Absolutely. I didn't think that I would be crossing the aisle as much as I am. Right. And uh, I have no issue with it. And if people have an issue with it, then screw them. Right. Period. Straight so, up. I mean, this is how you this is how you make change. Absolutely. This is what change agents do. Right. You got to be fearless. Got to be fearless. And you got to not worry about what other people say or think. Absolutely. That That's the fearlessness that I'm referring to. Because that could be very fearful, being critiqued and being judged, you know what I mean, and ridiculed and criticized in those type of ways. Like, that that's a fearful thing. That's like public speaking to an extent, right? They say that's one of the most fearful things known to men. But why is that? I feel like because the judgment that may come from that when you speak. You might be perceived as stupid or something like 
that like oh that is pretty confining judgments you know what i mean so like you you, you gotta just say gotta just say f it screw you i'm gonna think what i think believe what i believe for the greater good though you know what yep. i mean that with the focus of the outcome being again like something that's bigger than us at the end of the day we all on on this earth we all gotta share this rock you know what I mean? So it's like, if we all got to share this rock, how do we want that to really look? Do we want it to look peaceful or do we want it to look like chaos and war? Right, you know right, what I mean? Right. So like, in order to really make a difference, we got to remove these lines in the sand. And for her to take the initiative to do that and endure that level of ridicule for that cause, like that's so commendable. You know, what's interesting too is it's almost, there's almost more of a positive dialogue crossing the lines in prison than outside. That's deep. But don't you think? Though? Absolutely. I mean, to, to an extent, to an extent. But I, I can't agree because in prison, it, it's very political, first and foremost. But I think the intent of the politics is for peace. Right. I feel like the intent of politics out here, in my opinion, is, is for division. It's for, right. main, it's for maintaining power yep. and, and upkeeping those type of systems and structures. You know what I mean? So, like, in prison, people are very political, very diplomatic. But it, it's to maintain peace. You want to limit problems as much as possible because you're in a confined environment right you have to we got to share this rock that's it we got to share this rock so who wants to share a space with people and it disrupts your peace you want life to be as peaceful as possible like even down to our most primal state least resistance is a real thing you know what i mean we're not exempt from that like in the animal kingdom least resistance is a real thing so why create a level of resistance and make our lives more difficult than they have to be when we can simply just communicate, find common ground, do something about it. Right. Like, let's not oppress people. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it's funny because, you know, criminal justice reform is one of those things that is very much people crossing the aisle and working together. Right. And why is it just that issue? And that's what mm. that mystifies me. There's so many issues that are so divisive and criminal justice reform is not. And we should use that as an example of how we can move the ball forward. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I I think maybe just 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 spitballing, you know what I mean? Maybe one of the reasons why, because the people that get involved in criminal justice reform, in my opinion, just care a little more about the treatment of people. They're more in touch with their humanity. They're more compassionate. And I feel like if they weren't, then they wouldn't be interested in getting involved in the least bit because yeah. they don't care about the treatment of people. That's that's true. That's true. There's no there's no economics as well, there are economics, but there's no lobbyist pushing them from a corporate perspective necessarily. Right. You know, there's there's not the same outside influences that are that are changing that. So it's one of those things that hopefully we see more and more positive there. With that said, we gotta say goodbye today. Absolutely, absolutely. Unfortunately, we could do this forever. Right. I'm right. not. I'm not saying you to, goodbye to you forever, just for this episode. I, I, was, right? I can't say goodbye to you forever, Chris. I can't do that. I can't do that. We locked in for life, brother. We locked in for life. Okay. <laughs> absolutely, but. We got to pay some bills. We got to get up out of here, man. So as usual, I got to give you your flowers first and foremost, man. So serious. For all the work that you do, where your heart and mind is, your resilience, your endurance, your dedication and commitment, man. Got to give you your flowers for that. I appreciate it. And back at you. I'm going to receive my flowers, man. Thank you for sure. And thank you to you who tuned in. Again, presence is priceless. So thank you for tuning in and blessing us with your presence. And we would love to hear from you. Reach out to us at thelastmileradio.org. And remember, you can always listen to previous episodes of this show or any shows anytime through the SiriusXM app. Go download the app ASAP. I'm Maserati E. And I'm Chris Redlitz. Please join us next time on The Last Mile Radio. On SiriusXM. Yeah. No lie. I- I've been on a journey for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I've been on a journey for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I'm paving the road to success. Hey, I'm paving the road to the best. Wait, I'm paving the road to success. Hey, I'm paving the road to the best. Wait, no lie to the best way. To increase the success rate Define odds against us even when it's unexpected Changing the world by changing the way we view the world It's all perspective